Welcome to today's show of Global.Science. I'm Lev Hordisky. I'm Fabio Battistuzzi. And today we're going to be talking about science communication, especially with regards to medicine. Doesn't that go great? Well, we're going to have some issues, apparently, that are coming up with the current pandemic situation. So I'm looking forward to our expert today, that is a good friend of ours, um, who does a lot of work on modeling and uh, mathematical modeling and talking about um, COVID and uh, modeling of other diseases. And so he has quite a bit of expertise on how to communicate with the public. Ah, well, by the time this episode airs, it'll either have been a non-issue or we'll all be dead, so. <laughs> well, hopefully it's going to be a non-issue, but, you know, we'll see how things go. So what do you think are some of the big issues in science communication? Because it tends to be really bad, especially around medicine. It's either um, you talk too much about uh, the uncertainties in which people don't take it seriously, or... Uh, you end up uh, hyping it up to an extent where people panic and then it becomes a non-issue and they say, oh, you were full of it. I think a, a big problem in science communication when it relates to medical issues uh, is uh, honestly fear. Um, people are scared of what they don't fully understand and uh, they unfortunately often do not trust what uh, people that are you know, working in those fields actually uh, have to say about it and they may or may not like the answer. And so this uh, fear of what might happen without knowing exactly and precisely what is going to happen and the fear of how is this going to impact my life uh, are compounded and they end up being a big issue. So how do we work around that fear? Because fear is not a good environment in which we should try to be educating people. I, I mean, it's kind of the million dollar question, right? Everybody's uh, after that, uh, that solution when trying to communicate with the public. Uh, um, probably being able to give the public more control over what they can understand would be a good solution. The problem is how do you give them that kind of control? Usually you get it through uh, education at different levels, of course, um, but not everybody um, has access to it and not everybody responds the same way. Okay, so why don't we talk to our guest now who has some experience in uh, communication, especially around COVID. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Kristen Schneider from Hochschule mit Weide Universität in Germany. Wonderful German accent, by the oh, way. Thank you. Was that was that offensive or no? <laughs> now I need to unmute him. There we no, go. I don't think it was offensive at all. <laughs> Welcome to the <laughs> hello, show, Kristen. Hello, How are you? hello, Fabia. Hello, Lev. So good, so good talking to you again. It's been a while. It has. We caught up on all the gossip before the show started. So um, so tell us a bit about what you do with COVID communication, especially in Germany, because you have some uh, exciting stories there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. First, uh, thank you. Uh, well, um, so we did in, in our group, or my, my lab, we really rely, we're mainly malaria people, actually, or tropical disease people. And so our research uh, focuses a lot on Africa collaborations. So we have a lot of mobility in involved in our, in our everyday life. And then 
came the pandemic and all of a sudden we were locked in yeah everybody in a different country and so we said you know after the first models uh, on covid came out and uh, the first uh, conclusions on that people started drawing from this model we said well you know let's let's use the time we're locked in you know productively and let's do some some modeling uh, ourselves mathematical modeling as, as you said Fabia. Yeah, usually people see me and ask you know do you do modeling and i said well you know I don't know. <laughs> no, we've seen your web page <laughs> yeah oh well <laughs> um and so we decided to, to actually get involved there. And so we started maybe a bit different than a lot of mathematicians would do, because we said, um, also because we were working a lot uh, transdisciplinary and with, with people from medical fields, with um, public health uh, authorities, so we would uh, actually focus really on the application and on uh, predicting the near future in the pandemic and uh, trying to uh, actually predict what would be like are the impact of certain control measures, what would be the impact on testing interventions, what would be the necessarily necessary capacities on hospital rooms and our ICUs. So those were the type of questions we focused on rather than the typical questions that mathematicians would answer like at the end of the epidemic how many people were infected well i don't need a model for that in such for such a contagious virus well everybody's going to be infected in the long run. So um we we always would have like a focus on you know, we don't want to talk to mathematicians. We don't want to be mathematicians showing models to mathematicians. We just kept the math in the background and we just really tried to, to reach out uh, and be as broad as possible. And eventually, um, we never gave up. Uh, we would like... Uh, we would not be like, uh, we're kind of now the new kid on the block, right? <laughs> so we, we were not like the first ones that, that would get attention. But uh, we, uh, it, it took a while to carefully come up with, with sophisticated and good models. And now since over a year, we would consistently predict the future correctly. Uh, and that is where actually where people started noticing us. Uh, and started taking us seriously because yeah? this would say you know we're we're black painting the future and everything right you always get a lot of that but i just always said you know just let let's wait and see who's right so were you right and how does it feel yeah. to have been right <laughs> well see that is a, a comfortable position are doing predictive models on covid because you're you're actually happy either way, right? If if your predictions are true, you're you're happy. Your model is correct, and if the predictions aren't true, you're happy. You know that the black day didn't come. So it's a win-win scenario, basically. Absolutely, <laughs> but only for a mathematician. <laughs> well, I said, well, I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kristana, uh, you mentioned that uh, you 
your point started as being mathematicians that didn't want to talk to mathematicians, right? You're, yeah. You keep the mathematics in the background. So how, how did the transition happen between being within your academic environment, of course, and you know, doing the job that, uh, uh, that interests you to actually getting attention from the media? Because if I'm correct, you got quite a bit of attention from, uh, uh, from the media because of how correct your models are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, it's a long story. So it, it started uh, years ago. Um, so remember when we met? Uh, well, um, it was uh, already in this millennium, let's put it like that. But it was a while ago um, when I came, when we all met in Arizona, right? So that was my first escape out of the mathematicians, right? Because I said, you know, I want to have like, it's like a, a prison break. I was in a yeah. We were in a, an environment of molecular biologists, uh, bioinformaticians, so all non-maths. Yeah, so uh, I was the math guy, and you know that that started actually uh, teaching me and a, a lesson on how to communicate to people across the field. And it was actually great fun and much, much nice because you would always, well, if you're in your own field, you kind of uh, talk a lot about things you, you already know, right? But if you go across the field, you're learning something new uh, every day, right? Uh, so we learned a, a lot about, uh, you know, uh, about science and about other things, you know, at our daily lunch conversations, if you remember, right? And it was always great. Over, uh, over lunch when we were discussing everything, basically. <laughs> we were discussing everything, yeah. And uh, so uh, that, that actually started uh, changing the mindset. And ever since then, I, I would do these uh, tropical diseases and would go more and more across the, the borders to the other field. Because eventually I realized that, you know, people don't like math too much. Mathematicians love it. Wait, what? <laughs> Shocking. Well, not everybody loves it. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. You know, we, we have like a, a true but solid fan base. <laughs> but you know, okay, you you don't you don't fill a stadium, okay, yeah. So, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> we would like uh, kind of uh, go, go out and uh, talk, work more and more uh, with uh, across the borders, and actually find find out that you know you need to learn the other's language because the other uh, researchers languages and you know the terms they would use are and you find out your tricks to you know get through your point and definitely the point is not math yeah i mean definitely everybody needs to get closer but i mean let's face it yeah it, you go into medicine, in molecular biology, in genetics. Those are, are all fields that have a lot of research funding, that have a lot of resources, a lot of, of people working there. Well, uh, if, if math would be the best thing they could do, they would be mathematicians and not what they are. So um, eventually you need to realize you, you don't have the good cards. 
right? So you're the one that gets to make the first move. And, you know, maybe, you know, you just read open a, a genetics book, a biology book, or you re start reading on Wikipedia and some of the articles, and then you learn and you find your way to communicate. And so we would do that over the years quite, quite a bit. And of course, it refined more and more. And then eventually it goes on, you know, getting research funding, uh, on your own and you you find more and more you know that it's not just about you or you know people should love what you're doing because you did it but you think more and more what is the economic appeal of what you're doing and that that gives you actually already the the right hint or the right direction to go go them broader communicate broader and we would refine that more and more and we uh, uh, actually were essentially picked up kind of random it, it, it everything starts random so with the media attention started just by a journalist that asked me uh, about an article that some other researcher from across the field was criticizing all the COVID data that was published, saying essentially, you know, everything is crooked and totally misinterpreted. And then, and, and so, well, I was contacted, you know, looking over it and you know, give my advice whether that is logically flawed. Of course, it was partly. And of course. Is that what all scientists say to all other scientists, your um, methods and everything's flawed? Well, pretty much. Yeah, you know, some say it more to the others than usual, you know, so like this, the t uh, well, uh, I'm a borderline statistician or would consider myself more a statistician right now from what I'm actually doing than a mathematician. So, uh, of course, there are there are fields that you laugh more and there are fields that you laugh less. Like if you go to the engineers, they typically, you know, get get their act together. Well, if you go to the social sciences, then it, uh, well, um, it becomes fuzzy if you look at the methodology sometimes. Yeah. So, but it's a different culture to a certain extent. It's okay. Um, that's what it is. Um, but, you know, what really started uh, picking up then with the journalists is, well, this, this one journalist was asked, would ask that, and it was actually the first media attention we got. And then it becomes gradually more and more. And so you would see our, you know, you just would get a randomly call from, from a journalist and you just, uh, well, answer, well, be, be polite, be helpful. And then, by, and, and you talk to them. Uh, actually, behind each newspaper article, we were cited or everything. Uh, there, were, there was a long discussion in, in before. And usually, I mean, even of the number one tabloids, those are actually the, those where you have the journalist as the most professional. Really? Uh, yeah, and intelligent. Yeah. Oh, my God. They're, they're super intelligent. Uh, and so on. they know exactly what the readership wants. They, huh. they understand the, the matter very, very deeply. And then they know exactly how to uh, write it down, break it down and formulate it in the language of the readership. And they have a certain language and that's an art of itself. Yeah? And I, I must say, you know, I admire that because, you know, uh, let's, let's put it that way. Yeah? My research articles are definitely not mainstream. 
Uh, really, you don't say. Well, <laughs> I read them all the time when I go to sleep, when I need to go to sleep. Be nice to our guests. Oh, well, I, I think so. Another guest in the future. <laughs> I think so. You know, I think they should be used, you know, as good night stories, you know, starting in kindergarten. <laughs> Well, then we would, uh, we, we would have uh, definitely a very literate uh, uh, childhood, right? <laughs> I think so, yeah. At least you get the numbers together. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, uh, so after you finish an interview and you talk with these journalists, how well do they end up uh, translating your work for the general audience? Do you see them introducing a lot of misconceptions or do they try to avoid it? Because I know that's one of the criticisms you see and the scientists especially have uh, journalists that are trying to cover their work. Uh, they tend to take a certain format of this scientist says this, that scientist says that, who knows more research is necessary. And that seems to be the format of every single news science article. Uh, well, our, I guess I guess it's okay. You know, you you want to have a controversy, and because that is what sells. Okay. Well, you see that that's why more people go to the boxing fights to see Mike Tyson hitting a punch than you know they go to the ballet. Yeah, I know, Lavia, <laughs> you like to go to the ballet, but you know, I don't, that's okay. Yeah, um, I was forced by both of you to go to the ballet. <laughs> well. Educating you, <laughs> I, see, I see. You should be grateful. Yeah, <laughs> think of all, think of all the people that uh, think of all the little kids that wish to see that. You know, <laughs> not, but you know, um, definitely the the media definitely um, has to go in media cycles. So. You know, there are parts when COVID is, you know, down. So our predictions were there. And uh, of course, you know, they were assess uh, accessible. Um, definitely in the summer, nobody wanted to hear about COVID. Yeah. So it was solved, uh, right? We solved it. We uh, won. Well, so, <laughs> you know, but see, they just found, you know, we won and so on. That says, you know, um, I always want that. Yeah. But, you know, I always said, you know, just uh, think think of the Greek Greek story of Orpheus uh, and Eurydice, right? Um, well, he was impatient too. He lost everything, and then he was just crying for the rest of his life, right? And yeah, yeah. So pretty uh, much very, sitting on very his appropriate uh, uh, metaphor, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, he was like pretty much, you know, then uh, sitting there, you know, crying, whining on his lyra or whatever you call this, this ancient guitar, pretty much like, uh, you know, Kurt Cobain singing Penny Royalty. And <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, uh, but anyhow, you know how, what, what happened, uh, having another Greek metaphor, you know, you know what happened to Laocon, right? The, the priest of Troy, yeah? Well, <laughs> he was choked to death, right? He was waterboarded kind of uh, for, for his predictions. So 
<laughs> that, that is happened. that what you fear is going to happen to you, Kristen? <laughs> you told us about a lot of fan mail that you're getting. Well, you know, life is not that easy. You know, you get you get to see the sunny side of. So, I mean, things are not never you know a hundred percent good or a hundred percent bad. Yeah, and you know, uh, as much as I love you know doing this predictive modeling and and this this research, you know, there are other parts like you know bureaucracy administration and 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 paperwork yeah we're very good in that with, in germany and so you know maybe you know being choked to that would be a bit of a revelation from that you can see it like that um, <laughs> um uh, but anyhow yeah see that is that is uh, anyway the drama of life yeah um or that is uh, really you, you know eventually it ends but you don't know when uh, That's very true, sadly. So it it you, you never know, you know, what what could happen if. So you get to see it on the sunny side of life, I guess. So, Kristen, you you have another uh, your research group has a stop, uh, has been working on another project that I think is really interesting. You have been collaborating uh, with um, some um, African schools, I think, yeah. um, to work on malaria research. Right, like you said mm -hmm. at the beginning, you are a malaria researchers to yeah, yeah. begin with. Um, so, have you seen any parallels or any differences in the way? This program um, in, with the malaria research has been communicating um, the, the results that you found compared to the COVID kind of research. Um, have you seen any, any similarities between the two in science communication? Um, not, not really. I mean, I guess the communication channels are very different. With COVID, we really are, are picked up now by the mainstream media. And that is, uh, our, we always also give some advice to politicians and so on. Um, and that, that goes because uh, it is a, a highly hot topic. Uh, particularly now, we are experiencing this super hard wave that nobody expected because you know how it is. Yeah, it's like... Um, in summer, incidence is low, and so the winter is, uh, you know, that's a danger that is far in the future, so nobody takes it seriously. Yeah, it's like you know, if the if a teenager starts smoking, well, they know it's going to harm them, right? But you know, our, the trouble is way, way, way ahead in the future, yeah? and they deal tomorrow with it, yeah? and then eventually the black day comes. And uh, when a black day comes well, with, with COVID, now it's here, uh, actually we get this, this much attention. So it, it's very different and it's um, kind of rather shallow. And we would, you know, also discuss uh, different aspects maybe that uh, would interest the research community. That, But in, in malaria, the communication is more the type of communication that we do in the in the research community itself. Now we are experiencing a lot of of uh, troubles, uh, definitely a lot of obstacles in in Germany. So the usual thing is if you tell them you know you're working on malaria, they say, well, but there is no malaria in Germany. Of course, well, therefore it must not be a problem anywhere else, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. That sounds logic, and but but people don't don't really. And we've been now rather successful in in acquiring funds for 
um, projects in Africa. And the reason is mainly because our Germ the German government issued an Africa strategy. And we would uh, really surf on, on that wave because they realized all the, the economic problems that they have, the, the importance of poverty-related infectious diseases, and most of them uh, are tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV. And, uh, you know, malaria mortality every year is, is substantial, right? So you have up to a million deaths, pretty much. And What's Germany's interest in uh, African uh, well, diseases like this? That is, that is rather interesting. Now, Africa... Africa's population, well, Africa has, well, of course, birth rates are going down per capita, but also access to medical care improved a lot. Well, they got rid of the measles by mandatory or by widespread vaccination campaigns. Well, in some areas, they were mandatory, like in, in Europe, in many countries, the measles vaccine was mandatory. And they, they actually get a, got down child mobility quite a lot. And so that's why the African population is projected to double by 2050 to, to reach 2.5 billion. So that's substantial. And so that means a substantial impact, not just on the global environment. Or, so Africa is not like the world leader to say their care. Um, uh, um, right away, right, in, in kind of environmental health <laughs> and so are in clean production. And so really Africa has a transformation ahead uh, towards self-sustainability. And uh, now more and more of the industrial nations would actually see, you know, the typical four and eight programs they, they don't work, you know, the continent, uh, most of the countries need to get economically self-sufficient and, and sustainable. And now the problem is, you know, transforming the economy there from, from the current level towards a industrialized market economy, but taking a route that goes through clean energy. Uh, usually, uh, you know, on the way to the industrial to industrialization, it would go a lot about the furniture industry, the textile industry, which are all the number one pollutant industry branches in, in the world. Uh, I mean, the textile industry is actually one of the dirtiest industries in the world, and. So how's Africa going to transform? That is going to impact Europe as a continent and Germany as uh, Europe's largest country in population size and one of the largest countries area-wise uh, a lot. And so uh, there's definitely an interest in developing also the export market and a trading partner in Africa, uh, which now and any kind of nation realizes, like China is investing massively. Um, if you read Hillary's, Hillary Clinton's uh, book, Hard Choices, she would, um, I actually read her books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she, she writes and I read, right? And so Excellent. sometimes And so she would describe that during her uh, tenure as secretary of of state uh well you know that, that 
uh, she wrote a lot. Well, she wrote a lot of emails, uh, definitely too. <laughs> um, and so, since not all, all of the emails were released, here's a little synopsis. She would also, you know, write about um, China actually going into Africa. The U.S. apparently um, uh, missed their head-on start on that, and, and China's right now way more aggressive. There seems to be certain jealousy on that also. Europe also is kind of uh, rather late, um, and so now they discover all that. And um, so there, there's definitely mutual economic interest, and definitely the number one obstacle is are infectious diseases in this country, uh, or in the, in, in the, not in this country. I'm, I'm not Sarah Palin claiming that Africa is a country, right? I mean, it's <laughs> 50 plus countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so I talk mainly about Sub-Saharan Africa, which is what we do, you know, uh, uh, pretty much excluding South Africa, which is a world of its own, yeah, but like East, Central, mm-hmm. West Africa. And so uh, the, the countries there are uh, like if they double in population size, that means well the growth in infectious diseases is not just double. <laughs> I mean, it yeah, goes with COVID that yeah, it's yeah. exponential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, on a logarithmic scale, it appears uh, linear, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if you mess with the scales, uh, then uh, it yeah. doesn't look that bad. I, I think the NASA experiences one with a rover, right, or something, right, where they 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 max, uh, messed up pounds and and kilogram, yeah. Well, oh yeah, they lost uh, they lost one of their probes that way. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But 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 the, well, that that story is an old story, right? <laughs> At this uh, point, yes. Yeah, but whatever. Yeah, definitely. You know, it survived the usual news media cycle. Um, <laughs> so um anyhow so that means that there will be many more infectious diseases there will be infectious disease like our tuberculosis hiv or malaria so you never know how much they they going to increase in in their spread and so that that's uh very important to proactively um kind of look to to bring down the the number of cases there because you know it's it's like you have a, a whole rat tail of 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 never negative side effects that really cause a vicious cycle that you get a, that you get a break and so that is that is what we want to do with with Africa, and so we, we started actually picking up in in our communication in our grant application a lot of the economic. Um, um, aspects of, of the whole story. So we know exactly why we do it. And so we uh, particularly want to you know, go find new uh, talents in, um, in mathematics and train them to be kind of the next um, future uh, or the scientists for Africa's future that are you know equipped with the skills to uh, to contribute to the most urgent problems and well infectious diseases are one of them math is a low budget science uh, you don't need need fancy equipment you need you know paper and pencil and you can do a lot with that and maybe you need a computer but also that's affordable these days and so that that's what we 
we actually do there. And uh, by that, every time we're there, we're making new friends. Uh, so we're meeting up there with the malaria control programs and so on. Um, we had a last time we were there, actually, we, we could travel in in September again, that was was uh, very successful. We met up with representative for the from the disease control program in Cameroon, and uh, they they were extremely happy also because we know the language of the molecular biologists. Uh, I talked to them and they, they were just surprised. You know how 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 do you know all this? Think you're a mathematician? Uh, <laughs> you know, see, I, I just rather you know don't want to be defined by what I, you know, started 20 years ago, right? I mean, how, how long? It took me three years or so to get my master's degree and then, you know, okay, so it, it shouldn't determine the rest of my life what I'm doing. Yeah, you just learn new things and you learn what, whatever is necessary, right? So it seems, Kristen, what you're telling us that the key is uh, communication and learning yeah. how to speak each other's languages. And whether that's uh, mathematicians talking to bio, uh, bio uh, informaticians or just talking to the media, that knowing these languages is really important. We are good in languages. Yeah, I mean, we are definitely better in Fortran, C++, Python, <laughs> these type of languages, definitely. Um, <laughs> Those are kind of languages, yes. Oh, well, <laughs> we're, we're interfacing with the computer. <laughs> and yeah, need to be maybe, able to maybe there are some that speak Klingon. <laughs> I think Klingon is now an officially recognized language. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, All right, Kristen, thank you so much for uh, your uh, insight. Uh, I, I think this was... Uh, Really eye-opening to see how a scientist can truly become a um, um, vehicle to communicate, not just across the different science fields, but across the different nations and uh, um, and with different levels of, uh, of um, communication and the government. All right, so I didn't know that tabloids had the best journalists. Well, apparently they do if they interview our uh, awesome guests. <laughs> uh, but it was interesting to hear about how they really know what the audience wants. Because when you look at tabloids, they're very, uh, they really drive straight to the point of what people want to hear, which is juicy gossip. Yeah, and uh, and I think there is probably quite a bit of difference depending on uh, um, different countries. I think in uh, in some countries. Journalist, uh, the, the approach that journalists take is probably different, uh, and it depends on the on the audience that they have, of course. Yeah, because the European tabloids, I think, are better built into the uh, mainstream media than they are here in the U.S. It, it appears so. I think there are, uh, um, to a certain extent, there are differences in uh, obviously. Uh, the different countries, but also the type of audience that they are trying to get to. I mean, here in the U.S., it used to be, you know, CNN was the news source that at least us Europeans kind of grew up with thinking, okay, this is a reliable news source. It may or may not still be the case, but it seems like the style, for example, of CNN has changed quite a bit, mm -hmm. uh, probably for the good and for the bad, depending on uh, on the type of news and depending on the type of program that they are that they are running. All right. Well, I think this is a good place to stop. 
Thank you all for joining us and you'll hear more from us next time. Music for this episode is News and Sports by Music Town from Pixabay.com. You can follow Kristen's projects on Twitter at MalariaMath and Instagram at MathMalaria. Global.Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. You can learn more about our work at www.sciencevoices.org. 